Repent. I'm curious what this word does for you. For some of us, I know, it takes us back to revival meetings and altar calls, beating hearts and sweaty palms. Others might think of fundamentalist protests, calls to love the sinner and hate the sin, turn and burn, turn or burn theology. Some might think of the ABCs of salvation or four spiritual laws that describe repentance as this feeling sorry for our sins, accepting God's free gift of grace that changes our hearts and then changes our behaviors. And for some of us, I think, repentance is mostly an unfamiliar word. Perhaps it's part of an older tradition that doesn't really connect with us anymore. I know in this church and many others, repentance is not a word that we use a lot. We talk about brokenness and weakness and injustice. We talk about our need for healing, but we don't really use the language of sin very much anymore. And even more rarely do we talk about repenting from our sin. The dictionary definition of repentance is pretty straightforward. To feel sorry, self-reproachful, or contrite for past conduct. And two, to feel such sorrow for sin or fault as to be disposed to change one's life for the better. The repentance comes in the turning and in the changing. If then these, my, these people whom I have named my own should humble themselves and pray, and seeking my face turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and will restore their land. This verse comes from the dedication of the ancient temple of Israel built by King Solomon in Jerusalem. As the prophet speaking for God in this important moment in the life of, of the nation, they're looking forward into the future, and the writer sees that the people are going to lose their way. They're going to break their covenant with God. They're going to be disloyal to that identity as God's people. They will choose their own way instead of God's way. The biblical concept of repentance is the recognition that the way that I'm going is not the best way. Perhaps it's even evil. And turning, turning from that way back to the way of God. Repentance is hard work, especially that second part of establishing new habits, new ways of being to replace the broken ways that came before. I think a lot of us get stuck in that first piece, in the recognition of seeing our brokenness and asking for forgiveness, feeling genuinely bad about what we're doing, but then not being sure where to come next, and so we get stuck, stuck in this cycle of self-loathing and compulsion. I think that's a big part of why a lot of us have stopped talking about sin and repentance. Not because we think that we're, we're fine or that we don't need change, but we're not sure what happens next after the forgiveness piece. And we, we don't want that bad feeling and we don't need that bad feeling, but how do we move on? How do we change and grow when we're not actually sure how to go about that? So how do we go about choosing a better way? you've been here this summer, you know my answer, the Enneagram. <laughs> Just in case you weren't here in July or June or most of May, um, we are at the tail end of what has become an 11 sermon series about the Enneagram personality typing system. If you're tired of me talking about it, well, this is the last one, I think. <laughs> 
if you're still skeptical or if you're new to this and you haven't heard about it before, well, hang in there. I do think that a lot of what I'm going to say today applies to any kind of growth and change um, outside the Enneagram model as well. In the words of Enneagram teacher Chris Hewitz from the Sacred Enneagram. The movement from basic knowledge to principled understanding to embodied integration is the idealized essence of mastery in any growth process, including the Enneagram. This becomes obvious when suddenly you see how Enneagram types aren't just buckets for unique sets of idiosyncrasies, but rather offer clues to the essence of each person's particular purpose. After all, truth is meant to be lived in our everyday, embodied lives. But truth can be hard to find when it has been hidden from us for so long behind our personality. Let's examine this for a moment. The English word personality is derived from the Latin word for mask. Simply put, our personality is the mask we wear. Taking off that mask, trying to get behind the mask, is the work of the spiritual journey. A mark of spiritual growth is when we stop polishing the mask and instead start working on our character. The Enneagram helps us do that character structure work. The English word character comes from the Greek word meaning engraving into stone. And that's what we're trying to do here with the help of the Enneagram, to chip away at our being like the most talented of sculptors and reveal our soul's essence in its purest form. Many people who come across the Enneagram get stuck with the overviews and the thick descriptions of their own type. They love to learn more and more about themselves while resisting the implications of the gift of self-knowledge. The Enneagram is not a tool for self-absorption, but instead a map for self-liberation. When we give ourselves to the hard work of integrating what we have come to learn about ourselves, the Enneagram becomes a sacred map of our soul, one that shows us the places where we have vulnerabilities or tendencies to get stuck, as well as the possibilities of where we can go for deeper freedom and inner peace. This sacred map isn't fatalistic. It's not deterministic. It's not a horoscope or a predetermined course that doesn't allow for personalized twists. It's a compassionate sketch of possibilities and opportunities pointing us back to our true self and to the anchoring God, whose name is love. I really like that metaphor of moving from polishing the mask of personality to developing the character underneath. That is the work of repentance. So how could the Enneagram help us to move towards that kind of growth? First, awareness. One of the times when I'm at my least effective in my role as pastor, by my estimation, is the church council meeting right before our congregational business meetings in January. At the January council meeting, it's a meeting to plan the meeting. We go over the agenda for the business meeting. And it's usually the longest council meeting of the year. And that is often my fault. I want to make sure that we're prepared for the meeting. So I go over the, over the agenda and the budget looking for potential controversies. I ask a lot of questions. Why did this budget line change from last year? Do we have a good answer for that? What happens if somebody brings up this point? Are we ready to talk about that? What if this motion that we're bringing forward, what if that doesn't pass, what happens then? I'm trying to anticipate every potential question and discussion point. 
so that we will be ready for any and every contingency. And that's helpful to a point. It's good to be prepared. But I usually go for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour past that point, particularly if there's something that I'm invested in on the agenda. I see some current and former council members nodding in agreement. <laughs> this is all about my type six personality. I'm insecure about the meeting. And so I go full force to make sure that we are prepared. I try to control every little thing as possible so that I can feel okay about where we're going. But the source of my anxiety actually has very little to do with the present reality. I've had some really bad experiences at church business meetings in the past. Unexpected announcements of staff changes, deeply personal criticisms coming out of nowhere, procedural errors where we just did things wrong and that killed some of my ideas that I was excited about. So I have really strong emotions and insecurities that are connected to church business meetings. But none of those have happened here. You all have done tremendous work long before I got here to establish a culture of church business that is healthy and open and gracious and even fun. I actually enjoy our business meetings. We laugh an awful lot. But I still get this feeling of tension. I still try to control things ahead of time. And that's to my detriment and really to the detriment of the whole community. What the Enneagram can do is help me to recognize that pattern as my sixth personality at work. If I'm paying attention, I can recognize that the source of my anxiety has nothing to do with the present reality. I'm still playing out that unhealthy script that I learned at previous churches. I'm feeling insecure, but the reality is that you all have earned my trust as individuals and as a church culture. So I don't need to control those meetings. In fact, the meetings are far better off. The outcome is much better when others are free to engage. It's actually really good when things happen that I haven't prepared for. Knowing the tendencies of my Enneagram personality helps me to understand what it is that I'm truly after. I'm chasing that feeling of security. And knowing that helps me to see, oh, I actually do have a secure place to stand. It gives me suggestions on where to find what I'm looking for, not by trying to control things, but instead by leaning into the people and the ideas that I truly do trust. And ah, I can relax when I do that. I'm aware that we're having a church business meeting after this service, and I'm gonna be okay, <laughs> pretty sure. <laughs> When I see things clearly instead of compulsively, I can actually relax because I have what I need and when I don't, I know how to get it. And I can see helpful ways to get to where we need to go. So next January, if you're on council, go ahead and ask me if I'm feeling 60. That will help to bring me back to reality. <laughs> the other piece of Enneagram style repentance is alternatives. Jesuit father Richard Rohr lays out the core drives of the nine types like this. Type one, the need to be perfect. Type two, the need to be needed. Type three, the need to succeed. Type four, the need to be special. Type five, the need to perceive. Type six, the need for security. Type seven, the need to avoid pain. Type eight, the need to be against. And type nine, the need to avoid conflict. That's a daunting list. Those are all significant needs. And I see myself all over the place there. I bet you can relate to many of those needs. The Enneagram generally suggests that all of these are connected. That at the core, we're all looking for this sense of love and acceptance. 
And all those needs are the various paths that we've convinced if we do these things well enough, if I can meet my need for security, then I will have this meaning, purpose, and belonging, this love and acceptance that I truly want. Part of the potential for growth in this is, again, the self-awareness piece. If I can recognize that a need to be needed is not actually what I want, but rather what I want is this quest for meaning, purpose, and belonging, then that understanding can loosen my grip on um, that compulsive grip just a bit. The other piece is that the existence of the eight other types reveals the lie that my path is the only way. Yes, everyone else is just as needy as I am. And hey, most of them have different needs than I do. And maybe that means that they're not bound by the same compulsion as I am. Maybe you all have figured out, some of you, how to be secure. And so maybe I can learn from you how to deal with my needs. That's what the lines and arrows on most Enneagram diagrams are about. The type eight, whose natural disposition is to position themselves in opposition to others. The eight is connected to the type two, whose specialty is coming alongside others with empathy and service. Or the type five, who would rather retreat into their mind palace of observation and rational thinking. They're connected with the, the type eight, whose gift is engagement and taking action. The Enneagram also talks about wings, the two numbers on either side of your primary number. Here again, it's all about being connected to alternative ways of thinking and feeling and being. The type nine, who is drawn to peace and comfort, usually has an eight or a one wing, or both. They have this part of themselves that is highly motivated for change. Or the seven, who prefers to see life as a grand, joyful adventure, has a strong connection to either the six or the eight type to ground them in the awareness that there are things in this world that need to be challenged, that they're responsible for more than just their own happiness. Maybe I'm losing some of you in the details of the Enneagram here, but the general idea is that we have within our reach multiple ways of dealing with our stuff. And it doesn't mean leaving behind who, we, who I am, but I can broaden and balance myself by trying out different approaches, by accessing other parts of who I am. That's what growth looks like. It's moving away from this one path, being stuck in compulsion, my need for security, and moving instead towards curiosity and experimentation. All of this takes effort and intention. Most of us are heavily invested in the masks of our personality, and our world doesn't offer a lot of incentives to those who long for something deeper. If you want to pursue this Enneagram framework further, and when I post the sermon to the website this week, I'll include a bunch of links to the online resources and podcasts that I've found helpful. I also have a small selection of books on the Enneagram available on the island in the lobby, and you're welcome to borrow those as well. And if there's enough interest, we've had Enneagram workshops in the past, and we can do that again. So talk to me if you would be interested in exploring that. And perhaps the best thing that you could do would be to connect with a spiritual director who is trained, someone who is trained in the Enneagram. My spiritual director has been an incredibly powerful influence in my life over the past two years, and she's really good at helping me to unpack the Enneagram. And far more than that, too. So our church has financial resources available for those who would like to uh, explore meeting with the spiritual director, but the cost would be a hindrance. So just talk to me, and I can help you get connected. Finally, I think prayer can be a helpful way to get at this growth piece. Again, if, the, if then these people 
whom I have named my own, should humble themselves and pray, seeking my face, turn from their wicked ways. I will hear them from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and will restore their land. Prayer is at the heart of repentance and growth. Prayer excels at helping us to get underneath the mask and to shape our character. We started this series way back in May with a couple of services talking about prayer. And throughout this series, we've tried a bunch of different prayer practices that were intended to be helpful to the various personality types. And we'll try one more today. A lot of us struggle with prayer. Many, as a, many of us have been handed a, a handful of, prayer, of traditional ways to pray. And if those don't happen to work for us, then we're stuck. We just stop or we keep doing these things that don't really seem to be doing much for us. Not that we stop communicating with God. I think we can't help but communicate with the God who is in all things and within ourselves. But many of us feel like what we're doing doesn't actually count as prayer. And so we feel guilty about not praying or about not praying the right way. We don't know how to grow and cultivate our prayer practices because we don't recognize that that's what we're doing. Here again, the Enneagram and that framework of awareness and alternatives may be helpful. So instead of beginning about with those types of prayer that you've always been taught or you've seen from others, if those ways are frustrating to you, ask yourself, what do you know about yourself? What feeds your soul? What has been a time that you felt particularly connected to God? What was it that made that time meaningful? Is there part of that that can be recreated or incorporated into a regular routine? If one of the Enneagram types we've talked about has connected with you, what can you learn from that type that might apply to prayer? I struggle praying in groups, and part of that is my six-type need for security. I'm being around people raises my insecurity levels, and so I'm off balance, and I'm trying to like, wonder, how am I doing? Am I, am I doing okay here? What do these people think about me? In that space, I'm going to have a hard time connecting with deeper stuff. So instead of beating myself up for not praying right in public, and not getting what everybody else seems to be getting out of public prayers, I can say, hey, I'm a six. This probably isn't going to work for me. That's okay. I can go home. I can find a different way to pray later. Or I can find a different way to pray within that space. Your personality will impact your spiritual practice, and that's a very good thing. And then the second piece, experimenting with alternatives. So quiet contemplation doesn't do it for you. What about active physical prayers like yoga or walking meditation? Some of you will remember Eric Little's story in Chariots of Fire. I believe that God has made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's prayer. I'm 100% sure that that's not my purpose and my prayer. <laughs> but maybe I can also learn to feel God's pleasure in my body somehow. Or whatever. Maybe you could benefit from connecting your spirituality to rational thought. We have a hymn book full of rational theological prayers that are, that are laid out there. Maybe you could try bringing emotion into your prayer practices. I love Jerem Sawatsky's recommendation in Dancing with Elephants to give yourself the freedom to write really bad poetry. Maybe hospitality is your prayer practice, reflecting God's love by bringing people together and making them feel comfortable in your presence. All of that is prayer. Prayer doesn't have to be serious business. It can be light and playful and imaginative. That's how growth and change and repentance come, by paying attention to who we are, 
and by moving beyond what comes naturally. In that light, a final prayer practice for us to try together. No, we're not going for a run. We are limited a bit by, in our creativity by the constraints of time and group dynamics. So you stay where you are, get comfortable, and I'll lead us in a guided prayer of imagination that you might be able to, to adapt into your own practice later. Go ahead, close your eyes if you like, or soften your gaze. Pay attention to your breathing, to how your body feels. As you breathe, imagine yourself sitting in a quiet room with two comfortable chairs. As you're sitting there, the door opens and someone walks in. You recognize this person easily. It's someone that you deeply respect. Imagine a specific person from your life, someone that you look up to, a mentor maybe, an elder relative, or someone that you've admired from afar. Picture this person coming in and sitting down in the chair across from you. Now as they sit there in your imagination, imagine yourself letting them know about the respect and admiration that you have for them. Give them your warmest, best wishes. If it helps, repeat after me as you hold them in your mind's eye. May you be well. May you be happy. May you have peace. May you be loved. Now imagine that that first guest leaves. Someone else walks in. This is someone who's very different from you. It might be again someone you know well, or maybe it's someone you hardly know at all. They're just different. Maybe you find it hard to relate to this person because of the differences between you. Or maybe the differences are part of what draws you to them. Again, picture this person sitting across from you. Imagine the look on their face, what you might talk about. And then send them warm thoughts of compassion and acceptance. May you be well. May you be happy. May you have peace. May you be loved. Finally, picture yourself in the chair across from you. What would that be like to be able to have a conversation with yourself? What are you wearing? What's your posture in the chair? How do you feel about what you see from yourself? Once again, 
Hold this image of yourself in your mind's eye and express thoughts and feelings of love and acceptance towards yourself. May you be well. May you be happy. May you have peace. May you be loved. Take a few more breaths and then come back into the room where we are. I don't know if that worked for you or not, if it did anything, made you feel closer to God, made you feel warmth towards yourself. I know some of you enjoy that. Some of you wonder what in the world we're doing. Sometimes I wonder what in the world we're doing. But that's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to learn. That's how we move from the path that we're on towards a new and better path. Sometimes that means doing more, doing, continuing to practice the things that have worked. And if that's great, that's great. But if it doesn't work, let's try some new things. Let's experiment together. Let's learn to see ourselves and move forward. So that's my prayer for you. May you learn to see yourself with the grace and compassion that you extend to others that you care about. May you recognize the image of God reflected in yourself and in others. And may you grow in the grace and wisdom of your creator. Amen.